It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It has been a bit of a crazy morning for me. I've been working since 6 a.m. trying to get a story posted, tweeting, Facebooking, writing, working on tomorrow's column, dealing with what's on TV this morning. Uh, so we've got a lot to unload here, unwrap, unpack. Pick your favorite verb. Uh, I guess I want to start with the, this sort of surreal moment uh, earlier, watching Katie Couric on the Today Show. So there she is, 30 Rock, the place that she defined, the show that she you know, took into the stratosphere during 15 years there. And yet she comes on in a very defensive posture, her first television interview about her new book in which she says some unkind things about her tenure at the Today Show, at the CBS Evening News, and so on. Now, because the book leaked only to the Daily Mail, we've had all kinds of uh, excerpts coming out uh, no one else had gotten it, uh, I think at least until today, or was allowed to write about it. So the excerpts have sort of defined it. So she comes on, it's pretty much as I expected. Here she is uh, being interviewed by Savannah Guthrie. And she says, look, you know, I, I say a lot of nice things about a lot of nice people in this book. But she knows the game, that the, the most toxic stuff, the, the hard edge stuff, the sometimes nasty stuff, the score settling, is what's going to make the headlines. Uh, so I urge people to read the whole book and so on. So Savannah has to do her job. I'm sure she's been friends with Katie for a long time. And she asks her about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg incident. If you missed this, this is Katie admitting this is not anonymous sources. Katie Couric acknowledging in her book that she withheld part of an interview that she did for Yahoo with the late Supreme Court Justice. This is 2016. And it's not like a TV package that has to be cut down to uh, reach a certain length. You know, it was a half-hour interview. It could have been a 40-minute interview. It was about what Justice Ginsburg had to say about Colin Kaepernick and other NFL protesters taking a knee during the anthem. She used part of it, and that was what she said this morning, but she didn't use another part of it that she thought, according to her own book, would uh, make uh, RBG, and she said she's a big RBG fan, look bad, that she had a blind spot on racial justice. She had to protect her. So she tried to say, look, I used some of it, I didn't use some of it, I'm trying to explain to people how journalism works. And Savannah says, I have to press you on this. You said you needed to protect her. And Katie said, yeah, but, you know, I did some. I didn't do some. Uh, here's, uh, and, and here's Savannah Guthrie, to her credit. How did you justify that? It violates a cardinal rule of journalism. Couric. I think what people don't realize is we make editorial decisions like that all the time. And I chose to talk about this and put it in the book for a discussion. Savannah. That's not an occasion you're using that objectivity that is so important as journalists. And the question is whether that undermines journalism, boom, at a time when reporters are under attack for bias. Do you think it was wrong now that you look at it in the light of day? Yeah, ultimately, I think I should have included, Katie says, meaning included the full comments of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But I think it's important to look at what I did include uh, anyway. She talks about that. She talks about Matt Lauer, um, you know, again, in the book. She talks about when Matt Lauer got fired for allegations of serial sexual harassment. Uh, she sent him a text saying, I am crushed. I love you. I'm here for you and so forth. And in the interview, though, she says, look, there was this whole other side to Matt Lauer. I didn't know about it. Deeply disturbing. Um, and, you know, trying to sort of balance that um, because she realizes how badly she got beaten up. There were a whole lot of other things they wanted to get to. In fact, at the very last minute, Savannah blurts out, well, I wish we had more time to talk about 
you were going to go on a date with Michael Jackson or she did go on a date? I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about that. Um, another quick note, I've been watching these television pictures of Bernie and Joe. Bernie Sanders, Joe Manchin coming out, arms around each other. These guys hate each other. They've been having this sort of slap fight over the big $3.5 trillion. Well, it's not going to be that. Uh, Bill back better Biden bill. Hey, you like that? Um, in which, you know, Bernie says, we have to pass all this. I've already compromised. And Manchin says, I'm not voting for this thing. It's too much money and it's too many things I disagree with. And, you know, I always marvel the ability of politicians. And they came out and they were like, hey, we're talking, we're talking, everything's good. They're all smiles. You know, that they have to have these meetings with people who they have, you know, ripped their face off and the other guys ripped their lungs out. And it's like, oh, okay, let's sit down and negotiate. It takes a certain rare political talent. All right, lot to cover here, as I mentioned. So number one, Donald Trump suing Congress. Donald Trump suing the National Archives uh, yesterday for trying to block the disclosure. He's trying to block the disclosure of White House files related to everything he said and did involving the January 6th Capitol riot. 26-page complaint. I mean, you could see this coming. You've already got Steve Bannon who I guess the committee is expected to vote today to hold in criminal contempt or refer that to the Justice Department for possible prosecution. But the target of all this, politically speaking, is the former president of the United States. And he is arguing executive privilege. Now, I've watched executive privilege battles unfold going back to Richard Nixon and Watergate. And on the one hand, it has been used as a political shield by numerous presidents, maybe by every president at one time or another, to keep from becoming public stuff they just don't want out. On the other hand, there is this sort of principle, separation of powers, that the legislative branch doesn't get to know everything that's going on inside the executive branch, and that if it did, if Congress could, you know, subpoena anybody by private conversation with the president, subpoena the president, subpoena the president's own documents, how could any president expect candid advice and make decisions knowing it was all going to be paraded across the hill. So President Biden refusing to exert executive privilege on his predecessor's behalf. Sometimes presidents do that because there is a larger principle here. So this is going to be fought out in the courts for months. Uh, What Trump's lawyer wrote in this filing is, in a political ploy, imagine that, to accommodate his partisan allies, President Biden has refused to exert executive privilege over numerous clearly privileged documents requested by the committee. Now, the leaders of the committee, and they are Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney, said this uh, lawsuit was nothing more than an attempt to delay and obstruct our probe. Um, Benny and Liz put out a statement saying it's hard to imagine a more compelling public interest than trying to get answers about an attack on our democracy and an attempt to overturn the results of an election. So what is the committee after? Uh, Lots of detailed records about Trump's movements, the meetings he held on the day of that terrible, tragic assault, um, including any materials about plans discussed or created within the White House or other federal agencies to derail the Electoral College certification by Congress. Remember, this this is usually a routine thing. The state legislatures uh, vote to certify their own states. Those are, you know, in the old days, transmitted by horse and buggy or carrier pigeon or whatever. Congress gets together and and routinely says, okay, we are certifying the results for the next president of the United States. Joe Biden had to preside over that 
in 2017 when Donald Trump and Mike Pence uh, were about to be inaugurated. Uh, in any event, the Biden White House lawyer, Dana Remus, said the current president doesn't think a claim of executive privilege is legitimate under these circumstances. She writes, constitutional protections of executive privilege should not be used to shield from Congress or the public information that reflects a clear and apparent effort to subvert the Constitution itself. Well, a lot of lawyers are going to have uh, be pretty busy dealing with this. And as I say, it's going to go on for months and months and months. And then that becomes a race against the clock because I think this committee... Uh, is only authorized to operate through the end of the year. Obviously, they could, the House could have a vote and say we're extending it. Um, I don't think we're going to see anybody marched off to jail soon, including Steve Bannon. But that's the state of play. And obviously, there's much more at stake here than just the documents. It's, it's the entire narrative of what happened on January 6th. All right, story number two. The passing of Colin Powell uh, was announced shortly after I did the podcast yesterday. And I've actually really been heartened by the fact that across the political spectrum, there has been such respect and praise for this man who I consider to be a great patriot, despite the fact that conservatives have been very unhappy with the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the first black secretary of state uh, for his breaking with the GOP and endorsing Barack Obama in 2008 and again in 2012. Liberals have been unhappy with Colin Powell, and this is a stain on his record, and even the people who support him can't deny that, uh, that even though he privately advised George W. Bush not to invade Iraq in 2003, he's the one who did the dog and pony show at the UN, big slideshow showing all the intel that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, we know he did not. Uh, But, you know, in the overall span of his career, it was pretty remarkable. So Bob Woodward, who interviewed uh, Powell for his various books more than 50 times, uh, has published today in the Washington Post. His last interview with Powell was um, just a couple months ago, a few months ago. And at that time, we didn't know that Powell was fighting these diseases. And Powell says to Woodward, don't feel sorry for me, for God's sake, I'm 84 years old. I haven't lost a day of life fighting these two diseases. I'm in good shape. He was asked about Afghanistan, which was then very much in the news. I thought we had to get out of there eventually, Powell said. We we can't beat these guys. Well, let's get it over with. Afghanistan, you're never going to win. Afghans are going to win. They have hundreds willing to fight and die for, for this country of theirs. That's why I don't have any problem with us getting out of there. We can't go from 100,000 American troops down to a few hundred and think that'll prevail. Now, at one point in this call... Powell's wife, Alma, calls to him. He says, hang on a minute. I'm on the phone, Alma. And he comes back to Woodward and says, she never liked me talking to you, but here we are. You know, a lot of people forget that if you're of a certain age, you perhaps never even knew this, there was a great groundswell of support for Colin Powell to run for president in 1996. He was one of the heroes of the Gulf War, which was the war that was won so quickly and yet um, the first President Bush allowed you know, Saddam to remain in power. He decided not to go into Baghdad because there had been an international coalition supporting the U.S., and that was the pledge that George H.W. Bush had made. So Powell was a war hero, an incredibly inspiring story, coming from very humble beginnings, son of Jamaican immigrants, uh, and rising you know, to become a four-star general and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And so 
what would have happened if he had decided to run? So National Review has a piece on this saying, you know, in, the, in November of 1995, that was when Powell took himself out of the race. There were polls showing that Bill Clinton would easily beat Bob Dole, as it ultimately did, but Bill Clinton would lose to Colin Powell by 15 points. And at the White House, according to a Baltimore Sun piece at the time, aides watched the news conference with smiles and sighs of relief. And National Review goes on to say, well, look, first he would have had to win the Republican nomination. That's not a lock, uh, especially because he would have been running as a pro-choice moderate, more conceivable at the time, but inconceivable today, and maybe not even conceivable in 96. Then he would have had to beat an incumbent, President Clinton. Uh, Conservatives would have been in open revolt, so he might have split the party. Uh, So, you know, it certainly wasn't uh, a slam dunk, to use the phrase from George Tenet and the CIA about weapons of mass destruction, that Colin Powell would have been elected president. But man, if he had won, imagine how history would have been changed if the first black president was a Republican and not Barack Obama in the following decade. Um, And the Post also republished a piece that Woodward had done at the time, after Powell, the, the day after Powell pulled out, in which uh, it was said that um, Powell decided not to run because he didn't feel like he had all the answers. There wasn't a clear foreign policy question or domestic crisis that he thought he alone had the solution for. Um, even as he methodically deliberated, Powell was always deeply hesitant. An associate said it was always a no. He was tempted and he weighed it, but he never got into the yes category. Powell was offended, according to this piece, that many Republicans reduced their argument to, we'll lose without you. He felt he was not being invited to the GOP for any purpose other than to dig the party out of the hole it dug for itself. Eventually, he came to realize he didn't have the internal drive, the fire in the belly for the race. And you can't run for president without that fire in the belly cliche, though it is. Uh, One other quick note here about Colin Powell, despite all the praise that he is getting. There is a statement here from Donald Trump. Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautiful by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes, but anyway... May he rest in peace. Okay, not exactly, uh, let's put aside past differences. And by the way, I don't have any problem with journalists bringing up the colossal mistake that he helped um, the George W. Bush administration make in arguing for weapons of destruction or any other mistakes he made. You know, he wasn't perfect. He never argued to be perfect. But let's just say that uh, a less than generous statement from the 45th president. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Let me move on now to number three, and that's Meghan McCain. Uh, She has an audible memoir coming out. It's an audio memoir. It's not a book, but it is... I've I've been lucky enough to have a chance uh, to hear most of it, to write about it on foxnews.com today. It's a very emotional memoir. I'll just read you my lead. Meghan McCain is defiant, opinionated, determined, contrarian, won't be pushed around, and wants you to know it. She is also at times angry, depressed, anxious, insecure, bursting with raw emotion, and isn't hiding that either. The name of the memoir is Bad Republican, uh, from Audible. 
And she reveals what everybody wants to know. Why did you leave The View after four years? I mean, she... I, you could just watch the tension between her and Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar on that set, on the air. I mean, you didn't need uh, a behind-the-scenes memoir to know this. Um, but what Megan McCain says is, look, she was a Republican. She was the only Republican voice usually on that show. It hit daytime show. And she deserves a lot of credit for getting the ratings up and the show won an Emmy. Um, but at the same time, since she wasn't a fan of the aforementioned Donald Trump, because Donald Trump was always attacking her dad, John McCain, going back to 2015. Well, I like uh, heroes. I like people who weren't shot down, who weren't captured, was the exact quote. And she writes about, she talks about, I should say, uh, how hard it was for her uh, as her father was dying and even after his death that Donald Trump continued to take slaps at her dad. So she, so people who didn't like John McCain didn't necessarily like Meghan McCain. People who loved Donald Trump didn't necessarily like Meghan McCain. So she got it from both sides. She got it from the right and then she got it from her liberal co-hosts. She says in the memoir there was toxic, direct, and purposeful hostility from these two women on The View. She talks about how Whoopi Goldberg was nice to her for the first couple of years, but then had open disdain for her, would just harshly cut her off. And here's a quote from uh, Megan. Uh, Once she turns on you, it can cre- create unfathomable tension at the table. And then uh, Megan McCain got pregnant just as COVID was starting to ravage the country. She gave birth about a year ago to her daughter, Liberty. She says... In the memoir, she suffered from severe postpartum anxiety. That's an actual diagnosis. She was paranoid. She worried that people tried to kill her baby or kidnap the baby to get back at her. It wasn't rational, she says. The feeling started to snowball into thinking everyone hated me. So during this period, when she's very super hormonal, is the phrase she used, and worried about her baby and worried about COVID and her baby, you know, it was an awful time to be pregnant and to have a newborn. She returns to work remotely, it was still remote at that point, to The View. On her second day back from work, she's in some sort of squabble with Joy Bayer about the Democratic Party. And Megan tried to kind of lower the temperature by saying, Joy, you missed me so much when I was on maternity leave. You missed fighting with me. And very stone-faced, Joy Bayer said, I did not. I did not miss you. Zero. What Megan McCain says now is, I felt like I'd been slapped. When the show went to commercial, she burst into uncontrollable sobbing at the nasty remark. That's her words. She pulled herself together. It was intensely heartbreaking. After the show, she was crying again. She threw up. And that's when she decided this isn't worth it. This S isn't worth it. Nothing in life is worth it. And Joy Behar would not apologize when she was asked to through the executive producer. So now um, Megan McCain is kind of free to speak her mind. She's a columnist for the Daily Mail. We'll see what else she ends up doing. And by the way, even though I'm giving you, you know, the most emotional parts of the memoir, there's a lot of lighter stuff in here that's pretty funny. She talks about her days uh, as a party girl, drunk tweeting, she says, and her dad, you know, who was a tough guy, former POW, coming down on her at one point before she had kind of settled on a career and saying, stop being a jackass. I've messed up on Twitter 20 million times, Megan McCain. I mean, the reason this is such a likable memoir is because she's tough on herself, she's funny, but also, you know, she doesn't hold back on the, these uh, very tense moments with her former colleagues. Uh, we find out that Donald Trump invited her back in 2012 to be on The Apprentice. It would make her a winner, he said. 
that didn't happen. There was a call from President Trump, and he put Melania on the phone after some, he was quoted as saying something unflattering about John McCain, and he said he was misquoted, and Melania said, we love you, and Megan was not mollified, to say the least. I think one of my favorite little note in the book, and then we'll move on, is back when she was a self-described punk college kid, father's running for president in 2008, that's the year he got the nomination, after his earlier run in 2000, to run against Barack Obama. And they're a big meeting with all these high-powered men. And the senator invited his college kid daughter into the meeting just to listen. And the advisors were all convinced. Says, you know what? Because you're old and concerned about your age, you should, when you announce for president, you should announce you're only going to serve one term. And Megan's sitting there, she says, and then she says out loud, that smacks of desperation. That suggests that there's something to the fact that you're too old to serve a president. It's a terrible idea. And her dad thinks about it for a minute and says, you know, you're right. We're not going to do that. And the, uh, these male aides are staring at her, glaring at her. How dare she open her mouth? But of course she was right. You can't announce that in advance. There was some talk of Biden doing that as well. I mean, guy's 78. But you make yourself an immediate lame duck if you get elected. And it probably hurts you in the campaign as well. All right, so that's the Meghan McCain story. Moving right along now to story number four. Uh, The FDA expected to say in the next couple of days, and this is the one thing that hadn't really been adequately studied when we talk about COVID-19. The Delta variant, by the way, continuing to come down. It's kind of stalled now around 83,000 on average new cases a day, about 1,600, 1,700 new deaths. I mean, those are high numbers, but a significant decrease from the beginning of September, and I'm glad, and I hope that continues. Well, uh, the FDA has already approved booster shots, or at least recommended for people over 65 and who have these pre-existing conditions. And by the way, before I even move on with this, I meant to mention in talking about Colin Powell, that there were people, anti-vaxxers, who jumped on his death and said, aha, this goes to show you the vaccines are are effective, um, what they didn't know at the time, and which the family put out later, and, and frankly should have put out at the time, given the sensitivity of this, is that not only was Colin Powell 84 years old, but he, and we knew nothing about this, his friends apparently knew, was battling cancer. He was battling cancer of the white blood cells. His immune system was severely compromised, and therefore the vaccine was not as effective in him as it would have been in most other people. And nobody is saying that this, you know, if you're battling another disease or you have a weakened immune system, you could still die from COVID. But that is not a reason to argue against getting the vaccine. And by the way, my colleague at Fox, John Roberts, got a really bad rap about this because he tweeted, well, this opens up a conversation about vaccines. He's not anti-vax. Not only is he fully vaccinated, he um, made a PSA, a public service announcement, urging people to get vaccinated. He tweeted that he looks forward to getting the booster shot. Uh, but some people who want to further this narrative said, well, you know, he was kind of warned people away. And it was, nothing could be further from the truth. And I, was, I didn't say anything about the vaccine initially. I just gave, you know, my take on Colin Powell's career, including Iraq. But when the family released the information about him having had cancer, then I said, we shouldn't read anything more into it than that because it's a special case, of course. All right, anyway, on this subject of boosters, Next couple of days, apparently the FDA is going to say uh, it's going to approve, uh, at least for certain groups, the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines. It's also going to say that while it's preferable to stick to the vaccine you got originally, 
according to two federal officials quoted unnamed sources by the Washington Post, um, it's okay if you do get a different kind of vaccine, particularly if you got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's been shown to be less effective over time than Pfizer or Moderna. So there's a lot of focus about if you got the single shot J&J jab, should you now get a different vaccine, which uses a different technology, uh, to make you safer? If Moderna is used, this is again pointing to the post story, as a booster for Johnson & Johnson, what should the correct dose be? Some officials say it should be half a dose of the regular shot. Uh, and for the boosters in general, whether you got Moderna or something else originally. Others say it should be a full dose. So all that's going to uh, be, I guess, decided upon. And again, there's going to be great debate about this. And the government's moving too slowly. I'm glad the FDA's finally gotten around to this. It could have happened two weeks ago, in my view. So that will continue. And I think the fact that people who have been told they can't get a booster because they got Johnson & Johnson or because they got Moderna will now be able to get those shots, either the original shot or a different vaccine. And I think that will help. I think that will prevent some of the breakthrough infections. Meanwhile, you still have, I don't know, 65 million people, but now we get into the the debate about mandates. And it looks like the private companies, certainly, and even some of the governments that have mandated vaccines um, are now helping to convince people. And I understand. It's a question of your own individual choice versus your livelihood, as we talked about with Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, the NBA star who's refusing to get it. He's already had COVID. And he's looking at forfeiting about $15 million, nearly half of his NBA salary. Talk about being in a tough place. Which brings me to number five, starting off with Dan Bongino. Dan Bongino, uh, Fox News contributor, you probably see him on the air from time to time. But he's also now got a big radio show, works for Westwood One. He's got that noon to three Eastern slot that was once dominated by Rush Limbaugh. And he's done pretty well with it, according to this story in the Washington Post. The show is being distributed on more than 300 stations. That's a lot for a syndicated show, trust me. And that wasn't, it's not Rush numbers, but after all, he's just started. Westwood One is owned by Cumulus Media. Cumulus chief executive has given all employees until, had originally given all employees until September 27th to be fully vaccinated uh, before an expected return to the office. So several Cumulus radio hosts have already quit or been fired because they don't want the vaccine. And Bongino is threatening to join them. The reason that Bongino has been vaccinated, on the advice of his doctors, by the way, is because he has Hodgkin's lymphoma. So he's got a pre-existing condition, and obviously that would give you a weakened immune system. But he doesn't think the rank and file should have to get it. And here's what Bongino says on his show. I'm not really happy with the company I work with right here. I believe these vaccine mandates are unethical. I believe they're immoral. I believe they don't take into account the science of natural immunity due to a prior infection. I believe they're broad-based and don't take into account an individual circumstance or circumstances of why they may or may not want to take a vaccine. They're antithetical to everything I believe in. So I'll say it again. I'm not going to let this go. Cumulus is going to have to make a decision with me. They want to continue this partnership or they don't. But I'm talking to you on the airwaves. They don't have to let that happen. So that's now he's saying it's back in your court. Um, 
Although, I guess Cumulus could say, well, he got the vaccine, so we don't have to uh, terminate him. On the other hand, they are allowing him to have freedom of speech. I mean, he's made some of these points before. He still has his show. I don't think Cumulus is going to back down and say that other employees don't have to get a vaccine. They're going to reverse um, the executive decision on the mandate. I have mixed feelings about mandates. I understand everybody's situation is different. Uh, I also think that the whole country would be served if more of the remaining holdouts would get vaccinated. I, I think it is an individual decision, but at the same time, if you decide to get vaccinated, you are protecting your family, you're protecting your friends, your colleagues, and your community. I think that's a pretty strong argument. And here's a kind of a kicker to this story. The football coach at Washington State, Nick Rolovich, was fired yesterday, the school says, because he would not follow the executive order issued by Democratic Governor Jay Inslee back in August. As Because he works at a state university, he is or was the state's highest paid employee, $3.2 million a year. And he had remained unvaccinated up to the deadline, which was yesterday. The athletic director of the school said Nick is not eligible to be employed at Washington State University through non-compliance. Four of his assistants also lost their jobs. Well, you hate to see a guy who's a successful football coach lose his jobs. And I guess if it was a private university, which didn't have such a mandate, he wouldn't have faced that. But it is, you know, it's taxpayer dollars. It's a state university. So everybody, again, making their own decision. He's making the, the Kyrie Irving kind of decision. And I just read again, don't have it right in front of me, about a father of four who died from COVID, says, I wish I'd gotten the shot, you know, leaving behind a wife and kids. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. I guess I would sum up by saying this is a clash of rights. People's right to make their own decisions about their own personal health and the larger right of society, of a community, to protect its citizens. And this is the kind of thing where you you can largely be protected against very serious hospitalization or death if you get vaccinated. If you're not Colin Powell and you're not 84 years old and you don't have, you're not battling cancer and have a weakened immune system. But then other, it can spread to other people who maybe think they don't need it. And, and that's where... You know, there are arguments on both sides, but I, I have to say I have sympathy with the vaccine mandates because it is making progress toward that day when we will have beaten this insidious disease that has killed 700,000 Americans. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I wish this was a radio show we could open it up, but I will stop there. Once again, I always appreciate your listening to the podcast. I try to keep it as up-to-date and as wide-ranging as I can. You can go on your Amazon device or on Google Podcasts or on Spotify or at Apple iTunes. We're back in tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.